Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 29th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the Sweets 16 of the men's and women's NCAA basketball tournaments, wherein Gonzaga still looks dominant, and Paige Beckers ousted her fellow freshman sensation, Caitlin Clark. We'll also check in on the good news, bad news week for U.S. men's soccer. Senior national team looked quite nice, under 23 squad failed to qualify for the Olympics yet again. And defectors Dave McKenna will join us for a conversation about D.C., College of Idaho, Seattle, and Lakers legend Elgin Baylor, who died last week at age 86. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak, and a few seconds of panic and wearing his U.S. soccer what is, what is that? T-shirt? You got the crest on? It's the women's. It's a women's shirt. Three stars, so not four, purchased before the uh, 2019 World Cup. Is that your kind of mild expression of disappointment in the men for their failure to qualify for the Olympics? And my support for America as a nation. Great. <laughs> uh, with us from the West Coast, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the upcoming Season 6, wearing no U.S. soccer memorabilia whatsoever. Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. Hey, what's going on? I'm just wearing a gray shirt that my father-in-law got for me. Uh, just gave me a package of Hanes gray t-shirts, and <laughs> <laughs> I found that they're very useful for jumping on the Zoom with people. So so part of our soccer segment is going to be me and Stefan trying to convince Joel to become a U.S. soccer obsessive. And so the gray mm. is kind of your baseline where you're Neutral. starting at. And we'll see, we'll see what kind of shirt you're wearing by the end of that segment. Yeah, well, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm neutral. Gray, I think, is a very neutral color. I'm, I could probably go either way, but uh, we'll, we'll see if you guys can convince me. I'm 42, watched a lot of soccer in my life. Maybe in the next 20 minutes, you guys will be able to you know, change all of that for me. We'll see. So as we record this Monday morning, we're now one more round of games, which today and Tuesday, from Final Fours in both the men's and women's NCAA basketball tournaments. In the women's bracket, it's mostly been chalk so far. Three of the four number one seeds, Stanford, UConn, and South Carolina, and two more number two seeds, Baylor and Louisville, have advanced. Perhaps the biggest upset of the women's tournament came in the final game of the weekend, though, when six-seeded Texas pulled off a 64-61 to upset of Maryland in the nation's highest-scoring offense. And thus, the Longhorns can finally say they have an athletic program that hasn't underachieved in some way. Three of the four number one seeds in the men's tournament are still alive, too. Gonzaga, Baylor, and Michigan have played well in their first three games and look as good as advertised. But after them, chaos has reigned, with 12-seed Oregon State and 11-seed UCLA both one game away from a Final Four. UCLA didn't make it there easy, outlasting second-seeded Alabama in overtime without leading scorer Johnny Juzang. Josh, I'm hoping you didn't totally tune out after your Tigers lost to Michigan on Monday, a few hours after we recorded last week's show, by the way. But 
If you did watch any games this weekend, what stood out to you? I thought LSU played really well in that game. It was very entertaining. <laughs> I, LSU provided some some joy and happiness to the American viewing public before they bowed out honorably. I will say that UCLA made it to the Final Four a bunch of times without Johnny Juzang, so they have a lot of experience. They've never made it with Johnny Juzang, so, uh, <laughs> so, so we'll see if, if they can do it. But I always thought the Final Four was kind of a funny thing as like a branding exercise to have us think as sports fans who've been trained to only kind of value and respect winning, to think that if you make it to the semifinals of a tournament, that's basically as good <laughs> as winning the whole thing. But now they've screwed us because we're doing this show, as you said, Joel, on a Monday morning, and where traditionally we would be talking about the Final Four with the new scheduling, we're now like having to talk about teams that won in the Sweet 16 but haven't yet made it to the Final Four. And so I'm going to rebrand. If the NCAA can convince us that the Final Four is like some big thing where you should um, raise a banner. I'm going to say the Elite Eight is actually the thing that's the pinnacle of achievement <laughs> in all of college sports. So we're talking about this breaking point in the tournament where we can talk about these amazing Elite Eight teams. But I want to start with Gonzaga. And I usually like to just talk about players and give them most, if not all, of the credit as opposed to coaches or general managers or, or whatever, we can kind of overemphasize that. But I think it's impossible to talk about Gonzaga, which is undefeated, which is going to for the first undefeated record in men's uh, college basketball since 1976, without talking about how they've basically figured out college basketball in this era that we're in. They've like really cracked it. And we saw this year with like Duke in Kentucky that is a like elite blue blood program. There are ways that you can like totally screw up a season in ways that like you could never imagine Alabama being bad and it's like not even possible in college football but in college basketball it's a really hard needle to thread like you want really good players but you know now some of those players are going to like G League uh, or going abroad and so the super elite players aren't maybe even available for you um, but Gonzaga like if they're starting lineup this year you've got two guys Drew Timmy and Corey Kispert, who are really good, but they're like really good college players. You know, they were really, they weren't like the super high recruits. And so they're going to stick around for a while and cohere and become part of a team. Kispert's going to probably be a lottery pick. So he got to be better than they probably thought he would. Then you've got Andrew Nemhard, who's a transfer from Florida. And we're now in this era in college basketball where pretty much every team has transfers. There's more of an open market. And so Gonzaga got this really good point guard to supplement their team. Johnny Juzang transfer, by the way. Then you've got Joel Ayayi, who's from France. And so Gonzaga's figured out how to supplement their team for you know decades now with international players. And he's a guy who's stuck around too. And then the reason why, and Alex Kirshner wrote this on Slate, they may be the greatest college basketball team ever, or maybe the greatest of the you know, this particular micro era of college basketball, at least, is they got Jalen Suggs, who is a super duper blue chip guy who decided to go to college and has lived up to his billing. And so, Stefan, when you have those five players, um, you see what you've seen from Gonzaga all year and in the tournament. They look really, really, really good in a tournament where, you know, there's a lot of upsets because maybe no nobody's so great and some teams get hot and you, there are the threes. But it is it has been fun to see one team that's like, yeah, these guys are awesome and really fun to watch. 
Well, and they've also got a coach in Mark Few that has stuck around at Gonzaga for like more than two decades, right? Um, and that makes a difference. I mean, that roster breakdown that you just gave, Josh, is really emblematic of sort of cracking the code. They've, it's not just the one guy from France. they got a guy from Lithuania. They've got a guy from Mali on the roster. They've got a range. I mean, I think like every class is represented, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. And there is a clear understanding of the way you can break college basketball today. Um, but it's interesting. Don't you think it's interesting that like Mike Krzyzewski and John Calipari have been around for a while too, and they have seemed at various times and not too long ago to have cracked college basketball. But Calipari lost Johnny Juzang. He was at Kentucky and now he's at UCLA. But like, do you feel, I, I guess, do you guys feel like in certain ways the top programs can't build in the way that, Gonzaga can because you really have to go for those top players who, even if they are good, they'll only be there for one year and you can't build in the same way that Gonzaga has built? Well, isn't it partly, Joel, like reputational? Gonzaga now has, you know, two decades of this notion that they are different and that if you're not, hey, necessarily a lottery pick, you're not going to necessarily play with other lottery picks at the beginning of your career. But you're going to play on a really good basketball team and improve the way that Kispert has. Or if you're Jalen Suggs, you look at it as, well, they're, you know, they, they are like going to a top team because they play like a top team. So maybe I'm not going to be surrounded by four other one-and-done freshmen the way I might be at Kentucky, but I know I'm in good hands with the coach and with my teammates and I'm going to develop as a better basketball player. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that. Um, uh, it, it's clear that Gonzaga is anomalous among, you know, most college basketball programs, uh, and particularly the powerhouse uh, level. You would know that if you've ever been to Spokane, Washington. I mean, have you all ever been to Spokane, Washington? I mean, it, it, I mean, it is extremely remote, extremely hard to get to. It's not a place that you would figure to be able to build uh, a blue chip program, but somehow they've been able to do it. All that said, I mean, you know, Gonzaga is great. They're great this year. They've been great, you know, for the last couple decades or whatever, you know, ever since maybe going back to Adam Morrison. I can't remember if, I can't remember how good they were before I heard of Adam Morrison, right? But Well, um, so when they first came on the scene, it was like with Dan Dickow and Casey Cavalry, and they made the Elite Eight as this, one of these Cinderella's that we figured wouldn't, we would never hear from again. Right. And then they built, they built from there. But I just don't want to read too much into one year, especially the year that this is, right? Because first of all, Gonzaga did not get to play as many non-conference games as they normally would have. Like they would have played Baylor earlier in the year if not if if that game had been canceled. So like maybe they would have a loss on their record already and we wouldn't be talking about them as one of the greatest teams of all time. And I mean, yeah, Duke and Kentucky fell short this year. Um, you know, their model for, you know, the one and dones and getting into the the great recruiting classes didn't work out this year, but I don't know that that has to mean anything because of just how unprecedented this year has been. So I don't know if there's any real trend in that. I would say though, that like one school that you see that has sort of struggled in this new era and they didn't make the tournament and nobody's even really talked about them. I'm sorry, they did make the tournament, but they, they were not among the elite programs this year is North Carolina. And you see that they sort of struggled. They're like, ah, should we get the one and dones? Should we get guys that we can develop that might be here two or three years? And they sort of ended up in like this middling place for the last couple of years. So I think maybe North the Carolina benefit- who beat Gonzaga in the, in the title game in 2017. Yeah. Right. Right. And I just, I, I just wonder if like, again, we can't read too much into this year 
And that like, you know, maybe the better way to think about it is that college basketball is a one year every you have to retool every year that like every year we might see something different with the odds that the the elite programs are going to be up there every year. But there's no guarantee because every year you've got guys transferring, you've got uh top freshman prospects who might opt out and decide to go the G League route. There's just no way to know year to year what it's going to be like going forward. And maybe, you know, maybe if 2020 is indicative of anything, it might be that. But I don't think that it's that Gonzaga has figured out college basketball. Uh, I disagree because I think that Gonzaga is always good. I, I think where you're right is that it is hard to tell how great they are historically, given the context of this season, but also just given that there's not as much talent in the sport as there, I mean, there's no like, you know, Kentucky teams of the 90s when you had like, you know, all of the, or, or Kentucky teams of the 2000s, like where you had all of this accumulation of talent and future pros in the roster. But but I don't think there's any kind of argument about where Gonzaga compares to the field this season and they've you know they've only had one game where they won by single digits i mean right. it's hard to all year not in the tournament all year right so it's it's hard to minimize what they've done and say it's a product of competition they obviously have to win three more games um baylor would obviously be great competition they're a really strong defensive team and so i'm not like crowning them uh, i think it'll be that's the reason that i want to watch the rest of this tournament is to see how they do and to see if they win these next three games and go undefeated. Like real quickly before we move on, I don't want to be the person that's like downplaying how good Gonzaga is. Like I watched them this weekend for the first time, like for a full game. And I was like, oh, they're as good as everybody says they are. Like they're actually an entertaining team. You know what makes them differ from most other college teams? They can hit their open shots. Like that was that's like one thing I lo- I noticed all weekend. I was like, oh, if you leave Gonzaga open, they're going to make their shots. They've got and Jalen Suggs, a guy who looks like an NBA guard. They're a great team. I don't want to take that away from them, but I just and and sa- saying that they figured out college basketball. I think that's the bigger disagreement I had with you, Josh. Not that they're not good this year. Not that Gonzaga is not a consistent power. Just that I don't know if they figured out college basketball because we don't know what college basketball is going to look like going forward. I think it's a year-to-year proposition at this point. I think the issue with you thinking college teams can't hit open shots is that you watched Houston play against the Syracuse zone. They did win the game, though. Uh, How excited are you about (laughs) the Cougars? I mean, you know, as, as we've noted, by the time people hear this podcast... We'll know about the you know the Hoosiers are going to put up that elite eight banner, but we'll, we'll know if they <laughs> made the final four maybe by the time you listen to this. Oh man, of course. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, Houston Houston sports fans could use some good news of any kind right now. And if <laughs> if if the Cougars are going to go to the final four for the first time since 1984, um, like that's just amazing. Like, I mean, if you had been to Hafan's Pavilion, their old home arena like in the last decade, which was just, I mean, it was just trash. Like it was just one of the worst home arenas in the country. Uh, To see where they are today under Kelvin Sampson, it's it's incredible. 
And it, yeah, it means something down there in Houston. I mean, it's, you know, it's a little throwback. It'd be like if the Houston Oilers, like, all of a sudden became, you know, it just makes, it just makes me feel very 80s right now. Um, that they're good. And they're just like a bunch of tough dudes. You know what I mean? Like, there's not a great star. Quentin Grimes is, is the best player on the team. He's a transfer from Kansas. Um, but like, they don't have any, no, there's no Akeem Olajuwon's Clyde Drexel is on this roster. Like, they're just a very, I would argue that Dejan Giroux is the best player just because he has, his name kind of elevates him. Yeah, I mean, it's but very... He's also he's also very versatile, but I just love saying Dejan Giroux. It's a very Louisiana name, too, I would think, right? I, is, <laughs> yeah. that, is that French? I assume it is French. Dejan Giroux. Houston Oilers, number one, Joel. Um, Arkansas <laughs> and Houston are my two favorite teams left in this field because they are more essential, more essentially college basketball, it seems to me. They're freewheeling, they're aggressive, they're a little out of control. It's almost <laughs> like they're admitting, like, you know, we're just playing college basketball. We're allowed to brick some threes and make mistakes. Let's have some fun here. It's a little street ball And you also have to love the legacies. You know, you mentioned Fai Slam and Jamma from the 1980s with Houston, but also Nolan Richards with Arkansas from a similar era. And it was also nice that they got Jim Beheim and Buddy Beheim out of the tournament. That was good. Yeah, right. And I, UCLA is back. I mean, that's like, I mean, for those of us that- Throwback elite eight. That like, yeah, right. It's just kind of cool to see UCLA there too, right? Yeah, and like, speaking of <laughs> entities needing good things to happen, like it felt like in every sport, whatever they're calling it now, the Pac-12 has just been bad and down and made fun of. And so- Good for them having UCLA, USC, and Oregon State in the Elite Eight, all all raising banners. Curious what you guys thought of the Paige Beckers, Caitlin Clark matchup in the Sweet 16, which was really hyped just because they're both really outstanding freshmen for UConn and Iowa and who are just play a very kind of fun and aesthetically pleasing style. Like personally, you know, you could look at that game and say they didn't maybe score as well as they usually do, or they didn't shoot as well. But I found it to be um, kind of enthralling. Like, and, and you could see the future of the sport, and you could see, even as they maybe didn't play up to their usual standard, you could still see the talent and the toughness and the skill. Um, but I'm curious what you guys thought. Yeah, I mean, I thought that ESPN really tried to milk it as much as possible, even as well, the they game was on ABC network. Oh, that's right. They put it on the network and they were really struggling. And yet, the you know, the, the graphics and the chirons were about the two of them. You know, Beckers has six points and Clark has seven points. And meanwhile, other players on the court were going off and scoring in, in bunches. And it turned out to not be a close game in the end. And I think that also diminished the the rivalry, per se. Yeah, these are two extremely talented young. They're both freshman basketball players. And and, and, and this Connecticut team, you know, you talk about, about coaches and programs that have figured out how to stay consistent. I mean, Gino Oriema has done that, obviously, through the strength of— Yeah, their strategy is get all of the best get players. Get all of the best <laughs> players in the country. Genius. Uh, because you have the name recognition and the success to, to back that up. I mean, there are six freshmen on this team. They're bringing in AZ Fudd from D.C., um, who's regarded as the best uh, high school player in the country coming back from a knee injury, and she has recovered and is going to UConn. So this is going to continue. Um, but, you know, they were not 
they're not the they weren't the top seed in this tournament, and that I think is making the women's college basketball tournament feel like maybe there's more parity and there's more competition. Texas beating Maryland on Sunday night certainly reflected that. That was a really exciting game, and there have been a bunch of exciting games in the women's tournament um, as there have in the men's. I think the thing about that that UConn Iowa game that I come away with is that you if you, if you're just limiting it to a one game sample. It makes you understand why elite women basketball players go to UConn so you don't have to face UConn like Caitlin Clark did. You're basically going it alone. Like she had a great season, um, you know, scored 21 points. I think it's, well, man, I think she scored. I'm sorry. Did she score yeah, 21? That's right. Okay, sorry. 3 2 1. Uh, Clayton Clark scored 21 points, but she did it on like 7 or 21 shooting. And, you know, she's like going through this thicket of defenders all game long, you know, trying to get off her trying to get off a shot playing against UConn. I mean, if you're Paige Beckers, you can you can have an off night, even though it's not one of those like typically, you know, senior laden dominant UConn teams. There's still a lot of talent on the floor. You can you can uh, survive at UConn if Paige Beckers is having an off night. Meanwhile, Iowa, it's all on Caitlin Clark. If she doesn't have the game that you need her to have, it's not going to happen. So to me, that was just like another advertisement for Gina Ariema and UConn. It's like, come over here and let's just go dominate everybody together. Yeah, shout out to Avina Westbrook and Ali Edwards of, of UConn who had great games. But I think what you said might not hold up for UConn against Baylor, against other teams mm-hmm. in this tournament where... I think as we get further along, UConn will not be able to win or survive without Paige Beckers mm-hmm. having an, an amazing game. And UConn hasn't won a title in going on a few years now. So, um, Fate, it's, it's, a fading power. Fading a fading power. power. Well, so right, it's not yeah. like they can steamroll through the tournament. They need their best player to play like the best player in the country. And she's just a freshman. So that'll be fun to see what happens before we finish up. I think we should talk about the two best games on the men's side. The endings are Roberts and Arkansas and then uh, UCLA and Alabama. I mean, those were both just really fun, exciting games to watch start to finish really. Um, And Oral Roberts, particularly, Hanging in against Arkansas, Max Aismith, the nation's leading scorer for Earl Roberts, taking it the length of the floor and just missing a three to win the game. Um, you know, that was a really well-designed play, a 94-foot play. And, you know, I, I'm glad Arkansas won for reasons we discussed and also Oral Roberts. Um, but, boy, that was, uh, that, was, uh, that was really fun. Alabama did execute that, uh, that play. If only Oral Roberts had run that Alabama play to tie the, that they used to tie the game against UCLA. I mean, it's, it's a testament to Alabama that they were able to keep that game close while shooting 11 of 25 from the free throw line. I mean, that's, that's like high school level basketball uh, free throw shooting. Uh, and, and still they managed to get it into overtime. It would, it, and at which point UCLA ran away with it without Johnny Juzang, who we've mentioned, I think, five or six times in this segment. So shout out Johnny Juzang. All right, stick around. Coming up, we're going to try to turn Joel into a USA-USA soccer fan. In this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, my colleague Ben Mathis-Lilly and I are going to reenact the debate we had about Shaka Smart, the former University of Texas, now Marquette basketball coach, and whether he's good at coaching basketball, whether he was a good hire in Marquette. Interesting debate. Says a lot about how you think about sports. TRS talk about it. You have to be a Slate Plus member 
Just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Sunday in Guadalajara, Mexico, the United States men's soccer team lost to Honduras 2-1 to and failed to qualify for what is still for some reason being called the 2020 Olympics. A few hours earlier in Belfast, Northern Ireland, the United States men's soccer team beat Northern Ireland 2-1 to and didn't qualify for anything. It was just an international friendly. Same country, different teams. The U.S. that lost to Honduras was the under-23 national team because that's the rule for men's soccer in the Olympics. It's a U-23 tournament so as not to distract from the World Cup. That group consisted mostly of young pros from Major League Soccer. The U.S. that beat Northern Ireland was the senior national team, which featured many of the best Americans working for big-name clubs in England, Germany, Spain, Italy, and elsewhere, Christian Pulisic, Serginho Dest, Gio Reyna, etc. Josh, we talked the other day about how the games on Sunday would be a first step in our campaign to turn Joel into a face-painting, scarf-waving American outlaw. Now I feel like we have to explain the weird vagaries of international soccer. Josh, I'll give you a leading talk about to get started, assuming that you agree with this take, talk about how the Olympics really aren't that big of a deal in men's soccer and why one should not think that the U.S. sucks at this sport because we didn't qualify again. <laughs> again. Yeah, as, a, as far as a uh, kind of validation of where the U.S. is as a soccer nation, like the Olympics will not ever provide that. It's just not a tournament that's considered to be particularly important and you know i guess it's similar to like the world championships in basketball or something like that where some countries take it seriously some countries don't and it is like this age group tournament and the thing that's funny about it is that a lot of the best american players are under 23 but just because of the weird um rules of of soccer and just the way that things have developed um, FIFA doesn't require clubs to release players for the Olympics or for Olympic qualification. And so the best players just are never involved in the Olympics. And so it's kind of like this Gonzaga situation where in years past, maybe the U.S. was too bad to make it to the Olympics. And this year they were too good because all of their best players are just like their clubs would never in, in a million years allow them to be involved in this tournament. And so you have this kind of like second tier of American soccer participating in qualification. But all that being said, it is still disappointing. There is still enough quality in the player pool to beat Honduras, one would hope and think. And, the fa- and, and um, you know, this kind of gets to my first point about um, why Joel should be a U.S. soccer fan. It's just more fun to root for something than to be passive and not care. And U.S. soccer 
is a thing that I have found as I've gotten more into it in the last few years that it's fun to care about. It's fun to be angry about. It's a thing where the stakes feel really high and you can like feel mad at Honduras for some reason. It just really gets the blood pumping. There's just something about soccer, even if I was never a big soccer player or fan, but there's just something about it that is really tense and is really high stakes. And this Olympics tournament was like a good example of a thing that you can like intellectualize and say it doesn't really matter. But as you're watching, it's still like really intense. Well, okay. So, uh, so I guess we're actually, getting started then on yeah, this whole okay. thing. On this whole yeah, thing. You guys are trying to, you said you're being passive and, and not care. You just, you, I don't yeah, I mean, really, I know I it's cool to be like, oh, I don't yeah. really care and like whatever. I mean, it, it's just interesting because like, yeah, I guess I cared about U.S. men's basketball and when they lost and it was embarrassing to the country. Like, I, you know, I sort of, you know, I was like, oh, that's, that, that sucks. I don't want to see them lose to Russia, you know, like they did in 1988. Right. But on the whole, like, I just can't build my, you know, bring myself to get too emotionally invested. But here's the thing that's really interesting to me, because it's funny. You all talk about, oh, it's not a big deal that they lost and they're not qualifying for the Olympics. And everything I'm reading on like ESPN.com and The Athletic is saying this is a massive failure <laughs> and U.S. fans should be disappointed. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, shit, which is it? I mean, are, am I, are we Make not supposed to minds. care or is it a big deal? I, was, I don't know. Also, the other funny thing that happened yesterday, uh, it revealing my soccer ignorance is that I'm, I'm telling you know, I'm getting up on Sunday morning and I'm like, okay, well, there's this game here at, uh, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, Pacific time, U.S. men's team is playing. And I was like, okay, watch that game. And I looked at our notes and it said that the U.S. team was playing again later the day. And I was like, oh, I think they meant something else. They meant tomorrow. It was just a mistake. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit, they played another game today and they lost and everybody's mad about that one it, as opposed to the game that they won that we're supposed to be caring about. It's just, I don't know. It was just very confusing. You can see how for somebody that's new to this, coming to this, could be a little bit confused about like what the priorities are here and what the allegiances would be. Because All right. Well, the priorities, Joel, let's just set it out to make it simple for you. The priorities are for the United States men's national soccer team to become good at the world level. And that means doing well in the World Cup. And the World Cup is every four years, end of mm-hmm. 2022 in Qatar. I love the World Cup. Human love rights Cup. issues aside. Um, right. So everything else is, is, is noise. And I put the Olympics into that category. Look, not qualifying for the Olympics is kind of embarrassing. The Olympics is a 16-team tournament, under 23. Great Britain's not going to be there. Italy's not going to be there. The Netherlands aren't going to be there. Most soccer powers are not going to be there. The number one It's kind of lame to actually make it world. to the Olympics. Oh. All the countries that aren't in the Olympics are like, <laughs> those countries care about the Olympics? Okay, whatever. <laughs> I mean, the, it is a failure of this team, and it is a failure of the preparation that the U.S. Soccer Federation put into doing this. Let's get Um, off the Olympics, though. But let's get off the Olympics and move on to the thing that really matters is the the dudes that played on Sunday and last week in another friendly in Switzerland against Jamaica um, are the dudes that we need to get Joel behind. Um, That I know that intellectually and as a fan – you would like a lot of these players, Joel, and personality and ability are two things you really care about when it comes to supporting athletes. And there's a lot of good people here um, for Joel to begin rooting for and following, don't you think, Josh? 
I think so. Do you want to step in here, Joel, or do you want me to to continue the persuasion campaign? Yeah, go ahead and continue the persuasion campaign. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things that's actually really nice about this team in particular is that um, you've got guys from all over the world and all different backgrounds, and we can never know... um, about who these people really are. I mean, we've talked about this uh, in in the recent past, but it is a team that genuinely seems to get along and genuinely seems like good dudes. And uh, I think that was exemplified by Yunus Musa coming into the team um, from, you know, in the last few months. He's a guy who was born in the U.S., I believe was born in New York, um, but did not grew up in America and has come uh, to some prominence by playing in the first division in Spain as a teenager, just like a really exciting, creative midfield player. And he came into the squad for um, these friendlies in November. And just the way that everybody kind of came together around him, um, the younger guys like Dest, like Reyna, like Weston McKinney from Texas, like Tyler Adams, notice that I dropped a casual mention that there's a guy from Texas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I noticed. And he was kind of lured into this team and this idea that they're building something and that there's this new generation of guys that's like really fun to play with and fun to be around. And now he's like all over the USA. He like announced he's playing with the gonna like give his international future to America. He was in the team and like played really well these last f- few games. And so like if Yunus Musa who didn't grow up in the U.S., didn't grow up thinking that America was a great soccer power. If, like, he's lured in, if he's buying in, Joel, mm-hmm. then shouldn't you buy in, too? Because you're, you're, you're buying low, Joel, and that's what's, what's great here. You can ride the crest to greatness. And if it's not, it's not going to be in 2022, I don't think, but 2026, U.S. is going to be hosting the World Cup along with Canada and Mexico. All of these players that we're going to talk about in the next 10 minutes— are going to be in their absolute primes. You don't want to be on the outside looking in. You want to be knowledgeable and on this bandwagon. Well, just help me out. So, okay, so the guy didn't live most of his life here in the United States, and yet he can just play for the— Like, I don't understand. Like, don't I mean, you Becky take, Hammond played for Russia in the Olympics. I mean, you're, you're familiar with the idea oh, of, like— Oh, yeah, well, I mean, it's like Serge Ibaka playing for Spain. Dual citizenship, like, okay. you're aware. No, it's not like Serge Ibaka playing for Spain, or maybe it is. I mean, he's, he's got <laughs> yeah. an American citizen. He wasn't yeah. like he converted I mean, like Becky Hammond did. It, it's fine. I mean, it's just kind of stacking a, the deck here. I don't know. No, yeah, they've got, like, okay. American parents, and they happen to be born in one place yeah. and grew up in one place. But seriously— like it is a it is a vision of America that's like much better than the actual America. Yes, in so many ways that like it is inclusive. Like it's a place that people want to be. It's like a team that seems to enjoy the fact that there's a lot of immigrants and people from different backgrounds, and that they all kind of come together and play this like like as a as a unit. And so you know, I'm I'm being a little bit sort of, uh, you know, simplistic and and glossy here. But um, there is, I think, good, plausible, non-ridiculous thinking around the fact that this is a golden generation in American soccer. And so I think what Stefan said is true, that it will be rewarding to follow these guys. And so many of them are like teenagers or early 20s now, that if you buy in now, this is going to be a team and a, a group of guys that you can like get to know 
over a decade, whereas in so many other sports, you know, if, you know, I know you're, uh, uh, I think you like college football, for instance. I've heard that. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, right. You don't get to really get to know and follow a team over that amount of time. And professional sports, too, teams kind of come together and break apart very quickly. It's a rare opportunity in sports to really watch a team develop and get to know them over a longer time horizon. And I also think, Josh and Joel, that this is a team that is demonstrating real progress in American soccer's ability to recruit um, players of color. This is not, you know, this is a sport that when I grew up in the 70s and 80s was perceived as a white sport. And in in women's soccer, there's still that perception. This team is just I, it is just astounding in, in, the, in the progress that the United States has made in finding, recruiting, and developing players in the U.S. and around the world. Um, I'm trying to think who some of Joel's favorite players might be. We got some big, strong, hold-up type players like Daryl DK, this 20-year-old who went to UVA. From Oklahoma. From Oklahoma. I like Oklahoma. It's pretty um, cool. <laughs> was playing in, in Major League Soccer in Orlando and gets spotted and signed by Barnsley who play in the in the championship, which is the second division in England. And the guy has like scored five goals in eleven games and has lifted this team to to the brink of like being able to qualify for the Premier League. And he's a really lovable, fun um, young player with tremendous potential that nobody really had even heard about a year ago. And to see Americans like running around on the field with Lionel Messi in the case of Serginho Dest, at Barcelona, and Ronaldo, in the case of Weston McKenney, who plays for Juventus in Italy, um, is kind of shocking. And I think like it's to sort of step into the shoes of a fan of, I don't know, you know, someone in a European country that has a basketball player they love, and then he ends up on ends up playing in the NBA with the greatest players ever. I mean, who's played with LeBron that you would be like back home going, my God, my boy's playing with LeBron. Because that's what this is like. And there are a lot of really great personalities here that I think you would respect as athletes, Joel. Well, you asked that question about LeBron, and I just want to give this opportunity to say, uh, Daniel Gibson, Booby Gibson, who's from Houston. That was a guy that I, I was go. like, oh, that guy plays from Houston. Houston Jones High School, which no longer exists. But yeah, he, I, I was very proud of him for playing with LeBron back in the day. But okay, so w- that guy uh, that you mentioned, uh, Musa, all right, so what, 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 where is Musa from? Where is his family from? Where could he be playing? Other he was than the US? eligible to play for the US, England, Ghana, and Italy. Okay. See, this is kind of my thing. Okay. <laughs> like, I mean, this is, it's very random. He could have picked one of four countries to play for. He just happened to play for US, which is fine. I guess, like, does the US have to be good at soccer? Like, do we, like, I mean, like, what is the, like yes. you, the U.S. is so great at, <laughs> yes. at everything else. They dominate the, the the summer the Olympics. They dominate all these most of these other international competitions. I guess I just don't understand like the impetus between why the U.S. has to be good at soccer. You know what I mean? Like, and I guess like, maybe that's why I just haven't bought in. I'm just like, it's fine. I think we could be mediocre at something at least like for once. Like, let's just admit we're mediocre and like people deal with it. It's like one of the actual few endearing things about the country that you know. We're bad at something and it's okay. You know well, what I mean? But like now we're, like we're not these bad at soccer because it. the U.S. women are by far right. and away Fair the point. best team in the history of, point. Of, of women's soccer. So, so you want the women's team to be worse, Joel, just to make you feel better about America? I mean, I would like it if other countries around the world were better 
uh, because then it would show a commitment to women's sports in other countries, right? That we, that we, you know, that we, we have here by virtue of like, you know, a lot of resources or whatever, right? Uh, we have a lot more resources than other countries. So it would be great if other countries are great, but like, I don't, I don't, you know, I'd rather see Ghana be good at soccer. You're not mad soccer. at Honduras is what you're saying. No, and I know that you know being mad at Honduras is like a political strategy in a lot of corners of this other true. <laughs> the very, country. But very true. Yeah, but, but yeah, like why can't Honduras Honduras be like let Honduras have soccer? Like let's just I don't understand. You know the, the impetus between like taking players from around the country and giving them a big deal and like rallying behind them. That's fine and all, but I just I you know I don't I don't need the U.S. To be good at soccer, to feel good about soccer. You guys know we talked about the World Cup. Didn't, didn't we talk about me watching Killian Mbappe? They want somebody. Oh, I think man, somebody I wrote think in. You had to mention Mbappe again. You've got to move on from Mbappe. Right? I know somebody. Somebody wrote in and accused me of being racist for saying that I liked Killian Mbappe. Uh, but I just liked him because he's fast. Like I mean, I don't. It, wasn't, it didn't have anything to do w- with his uh, ethnicity or nationality. We should have him do a fast. match race with DeAndre Yedlin. See his. Uh, see his. Fast yeah, I was going to say. Does, does the U.S. have anybody like uh, Killian Mbappe fast like that? A great athlete you yeah. just love the guys with the track with track speed i think you got the wrong message from what i was saying about musa like the reason that musa wanted to play for the u.s is because he's attracted by this program and what guys have built like weston mckinney who grew up in texas and came up through the mls academy in dallas and um, guys like tyler adams and like christian pulisic who grew up in the united states and i think that you make a really good point. I think the hardest thing to kind of get your head around and a thing you either get past or don't get past is this idea that like the U.S. is dominant in so many other sports and basketball in the in the Olympics, for example. And is it do you kind of feel like an ugly American, especially in like CONCACAF qualifying or like, man, like we got to take it to Mexico, like, <laughs> yeah. like. Oh man, like the US needs to really destroy Mexico because like Mexico is always awesome and be- like that's not uh necessarily a a feeling that one can get behind in most realms of society. But um I do like look to this group of players again who like deeply care and grew up like wanting this to happen and have clearly like invested a huge amount and tried really hard and are getting validation on the world stage by being at the club level, at the top level of the sport, but also like increasingly internationally. And so even if you don't think that it's like important for America, qua America, to be good at this sport, I think you can still feel some, some measure of like respect and pride for this group. And also, I, but I mean, ultimately, Joel, I think the thing that'll win you over or not is just having an interest in the sport. And I've developed more of an interest in it over the years. And just like the amount of skill and the, like when a a play comes together and the, the level of kind of teamwork and how a game can sort of culminate in one particular moment. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, but when it does, it just feels really amazing. Like that's the thing that I think, will either be there or not because you're obviously you know it, it doesn't make sense to just like but, root but for root for america in a a game or a thing that you don't particularly care about so yeah like i already really enjoy the world cup like i remember watching the 2010 
you know, final where uh, the Netherlands and Spain went into extra time. It was a scoreless tie. Like, I thought that was fascinating. Like, there was a lot of intensity. It was highly competitive. A scoreless tie was interesting to me. You know, I'm a soccer fan. I, I was fine with it. I watched the Copa America that year because I thought the Copa America looked fun and exciting. Like, I was like, ooh, I would love to go to a game down there. Um, I guess maybe the disconnect for me is that like once they start breaking down and going to like the Premier League and all these other like random ass professional leagues, like I just don't give a shit to be honest. It takes so, a lot of mean? bandwidth to keep up with it. It yeah. really does. And it's okay to sort of start by wanting to care about the national team. And, you know, for me, Joel, a lot of this was growing up as a soccer fan, living abroad for a little while sort of monitoring the way that the United States was consistently, and with good reason, disrespected on the world soccer stage. And to watch the sort of progress um, and to sort of care in a way that American sports fans don't often get to care because we are sort of imperialists and believe that we're better than everybody at anything. And you know what? We ain't going to be better than everybody at basketball forever, and we're not. You know, they've lost world championships and Olympic um, medal games. So for this, there is a sense of validation and a sense of rising to the level of the gifted, um, the very best in the world. And to see that happen organically is exciting. And to see, as Josh said, and it's not just Musa, but there are other players like Serginho Dest, who we mentioned, who are choosing actively to be part of, Wait. of the United States. Wait, Stefan, why aren't you reading for Greece? I always root for Greece when they make it, but they don't make it that often. Oh, they're not good? <laughs> Are they not good at soccer? <laughs> they're, not, they're good at soccer, but they play in Europe, and everyone's really good in Europe. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, when, when Greece won the European, the Euros, back in, what was it, 2004? I was at a bar in D.C. watching every game. So, yeah, I'm, I'm there loyally. I'm like one of these guys that could have played for either team. I could have played for Greece. I could have played for the United <laughs> so States. So if, if, if Greece plays this both. generation, this great generation of young American players in the future, who are you going to root for then? I'm rooting for America. Sorry, Greece. I'm invested in these dudes. This is an exciting group of players. Also, did you know that the son of the current president of Liberia is an American soccer player? Really? National team. Tim Weah. Huh. Jordan Weah was World Soccer Player of the Year, one of the greatest players ever, and now he's president of Liberia. So, you know, we got some, we right. got some political Th- heavyweights. This is a multi-step process. We'll check back in with you uh, <laughs> later this year. All right. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We'll keep trying. Coming up next, Dave McKenna on Elgin Baylor. Weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Elgin Baylor had a wonderful life, but deserved better. That's the first line of Dave McKenna's obituary for Baylor, who died last week at age 86. Baylor was, in many ways, the first truly modern basketball player. You could watch him and him alone as far back as the early 1950s with his jump shot and reverse dunks and see what the sport would become. But as McKenna wrote in his obit, 
Baylor's early life was circumscribed by Jim Crow. He couldn't play on the fancy all-white playground near his black elementary school in Washington, D.C. He couldn't play in the all-white local all-star games. He wasn't recruited by the all-white local colleges. McKenna wrote, I think all the time about Baylor getting on a train out west from D.C. in 1954, forced to leave town and everything he knew behind to chase greatness, which he would surely find far from home. That image tells me so much about what was wonderful about him and wrong with our country. Dave McKenna wrote about Baylor for Defector, the website he co-owns. He's also written about Baylor for Washington City Paper and Grantland, neither of which he co-owns and only one of which still exists. Dave McKenna, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very sad. (laughs) Um, Let's start with that train ride out west when Elgin Baylor left Washington, D.C. Can you explain where he was going and why he was going there? Yeah, um, he, he, uh, he was going to the College of Idaho in Caldwell, Idaho, uh, the middle of nowhere, proverbial middle of nowhere, um, because, no, as, you, as you said, he was ignored by, uh, locally. He had, there were no, the, the, even though he had uh, only a few weeks uh, before the NBA draft of 1954, he had played a, a, against Gene Shu, who would be a, what would now be called a lottery pick and go on to a Hall of Fame career. And he had outplayed him and won MVP of the tournament, a high school player against a college senior and one of the best college seniors uh, in the country, and yet uh, was ignored by the University of Maryland, where Gene Shue went, and Georgetown University, which would go on to have this reputation as quite a progressive school, and um, George Washington University. Every school, every local team with a, uh, with a basketball program, they, they were years away from even considering a black player. And even on the national scene, he got no serious, he got no scholarship offer. So uh, a, another DC guy named uh, Warren Williams, who had uh, been a, a friend of his on the playground, uh, and it was also a multi-sport athlete. Of football and basketball, all met from the Washington Post. All met, meaning all star. Had uh, a family friend who was a uh, Harlem Globetrotter who had heard about a college in Idaho that was recruiting. You know, would would have would take all comers regardless of race, and was putting together an, an athletic program. And Warren called up, had told the coach about. I'd got the, the this guy back home who. Who, uh, who is the best basketball player in, on the planet. And uh, what do you think? He said, oh, bring him along, because the, the football coach was also the basketball coach at, at the school. And uh, next thing you know, Baylor's on a train to, to Idaho, you know, which he had, never, he had never been outside of the city. The furthest away he had been was to the Virginia border, Virginia, West Virginia border, not to, which is not too far from D.C., uh, to visit a relative. He had, that's the furthest he had ever been from home. And the next thing, you know, he's on a train to Idaho some 2,000 miles away. I'm very touched by almost everything about uh, a Baylor story, but that uh, image of, a, of a, uh, a black kid in 1954 getting on a train to go to Idaho, it just, uh, it, it kills me. I, I kind of wanted to follow up on this because you say that they were, Baylor and, and his friends were constantly aware of their statuses, I, I guess for lack of a better term, anomalies in Idaho, right? And that, but it, that it didn't feel isolating. And you said he wrote in his autobiography, it feels as if WW and I have wandered into a private and exclusive members only club, but rather than feel intimidated or excluded like I do in DC, I feel invited. What made Idaho so inviting to him? 
You know, Idaho now is, is the land where Mark Furman escapes to after the OJ trial. That's, that's my image of Idaho. Yet these guys, uh, they had uh, five guys on the basketball team, and Idaho was, you know, the, maybe the whitest state in the union at the time, were black and were treated wonderfully to a man. You know, I talked to three of them through the years, and um, were treated wonderfully. And, and my only guess... <laughs> Is that they? It was like a foreign. They were foreign exchange students, basically. They were they were Italian to the to the, to the people of Idaho. They were, you know, it was uh, they were the novelty, and also, obviously, they they brought newfound uh, success to the school. They went undefeated in the basketball team was undefeated the first time in the in the, the history of the conference that any school had had a, an undefeated conference record, and the first time, obviously, in, in the College of Idaho's record. So, I mean, I think those two things maybe that they they the novelty. And the obvious uh, skills and talents. These they introduced, you know, a new style of basketball to to the people of Idaho, and I think that that that's the combination that why they were treated. But again, no episodes of, of racism, you know, that that they can recall. None of them recounted anything but but being treated wonderfully. Like they they remember uh, being uh, stereotyped, or or maybe this better word, um, typecast uh, at at parties when people would ask them to teach. And like Elgin and Warren both got asked to teach kids how to dance. <laughs> and, but they, they took it very sweetly. They said that it was from a place of sweetness that they were asked because they had moves that the, you know, the, the Idahoans had never seen. And yet it, yeah, did, it was a very, a very uplifting, uh, uh, I mean, a very sweet tale to talk to them about this time. But it didn't end totally sweetly, though. They had that one great season. They actually lost in the NAIA championship, and they didn't go back for a second year, Right. Correct. The uh, College of Idaho um, effectively canceled the basketball program. They eliminated the scholarships after one season, this great season. And it, that followed a uh, Sports Illustrated story um, about this tiny little school, the College of Idaho, that's, you know, has all of a sudden this incredible program. And you read between the lines, it's like... It's, it starts out like you think it's a positive story, but between the lines, it's saying, hey, they only did it because they let black, inferior academic black kids in, uh, black kids without, without the uh, proper records. I, I, I'm sure that national publicity is what did it. That's why they yanked, they pulled the program, pulled the plug on it, which is, you know, it, it ended up being, you know, Baylor uh, probably, I, I think he was unstoppable at that point. I mean, he could have gone right to the NBA had it, you know, at that point, if had it been allowed. You know, it ended up being he likely would not have gotten. It was an NAIA school, and in the end, it may have helped him because he went on to the College of Seattle University, uh, which wasn't too far away, and uh, took them f- to the Final Four single-handedly, which is an amazing, amazing tale. And another really telling aspect of that part of the B- Baylor story is that he goes out to Idaho with these two friends of his from D.C., and then goes to Seattle with a totally separate new group of friends from D.C. So it tells you a couple things. Number one, that like Baylor didn't want his success to be individual. Like he wanted to spread it to people that he grew up with and that he knew. And he saw that he had this opportunity and maybe this was like a better place and he wanted to give that to other folks. But also that Baylor wanted to feel comfortable, that he he didn't actually feel at home in D.C. because of all that we've talked about and all that wasn't available to him. But he felt comfortable with the people that he grew up with and people in DC and he wanted to bring he wanted to be in D like he wanted a part of DC in a place where he could feel more at home right yeah and and again 
I, I'm a sap about Baylor, and but talking to these guys, like you know, a, um, a teammate of his at Spingarn, uh, he went back and he brought two guys from uh, when he went to Seattle. He, he the, the two guys at Idaho went home, and he went back and brought two guys from Spingarn. His high school uh, in DC. Spingarn High School in in Washington DC. Uh, he he went and got two guys. This shows another sign of his greatness. Before he said. Uh, to the coach of Seattle, if it, you know, if I can bring some guys here, I'll co- I'll come. And uh, they, they said, sure, <laughs> whatever you want. And he went home and he and he shared, you know, like like he shared the wealth. Like, and I, I remember uh, uh, one of the guys telling me about getting a knock on the door and saying, uh, "Do you want to go to?" Co-? It was Elgin Baylor over Chris, you know, like over summer break, saying, "Do you want to go to college?" You know, like, come on, get in. We're going to leave in tomorrow. Let's go. The guy was going to go to the army, and he was like, "All right, I guess I'll go to college." And going to the next room and telling his mom. I get to go to college, and he also got to play in the Final Four. Because, but I mean, like it, it, he he was, you know, I talked to him a half a century later, and he was still just unbelievably touched, you know, his his uh, about how his life had changed from that knocking on the door. And yet, that also ended with the black kids getting accused of cheating and the program falling from its heights. And that is a running theme in Baylor's young life, right? And and it shaped the way he felt about D.C. and the way he viewed segregation you know, from, the, from the second he left the city um, and into his, uh, into his career in the NBA. Yeah, the uh, Seattle program was, uh, was put on probation because of uh, the coaches recruiting another Spingarn player who would go on to an NBA career. They said he get, that, that the coach had illegally given him a plane ticket to visit the campus, which, you know... And it, yeah, but like you said, like it, it, the, the, that pattern is, uh, it, it doesn't look good on paper for, for uh, the white power structure where the two places he goes and brings to their, 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 their greatest heights athletically are then crushed by the, by the, the machine. Mo- moving forward just a little bit, Dave, um, I'm le- still learning about Elgin Baylor, right? And like I was, you know, reading uh, all the great things you've written about him over the years, like I'm just... Shocked, for instance, that he was a peer of Wilt Chamberlain. Like, you know, it it never occurred to me that, like, not only was he a peer, he got the best of Wilt when Wilt came and visited him in D.C. And I I go back to your 2018 essay in Deadspin that was headlined, Elgin Baylor is finally ready to tell people he was great. And I'm just kind of curious to know, do you think he wanted to take more ownership of his story in later years because of how much his reputation suffered with the Clippers and working for Donald Sterling? Because that's who I knew Elgin Baylor is. Like, you know, just sort of this overwhelmed GM working for the Clippers, you know, the worst franchise in professional sports. First of all, the, the Clippers episode is one, I, I, I wrote more words about Baylor than just about anyone, I've, maybe Dan, Dan Snyder, obviously. I mean, Dan Snyder, I wrote more words about than anybody in my life. But uh, uh, Elgin is number two, and I never, I, I, I would mention the sentence of the Clippers, I'd like disregarded that chapter because that's not Elgin Baylor. He was a, he was put in a horrible uh, situation and uh, he deserved no blame for that. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, as far as taking ownership of his story, if I may be incredibly honest, I think he took ownership of his story because people around him finally said, you know, time is running out. If you don't do it, do it now. He was kind of I don't think he really he didn't care. 
he he would I think being called boastful would be like the the biggest insult to him personally. He did not want to come off as a guy who was self centered and talked about himself. Even though like around here, like the, the the John Thompson era, his peers here, you you talk to any one of them about Elgin, like they're you know they shake their head first, like you know they like they, they remember seeing a ghost, you know, seeing him on the playground the first time. They'd never seen anything like it. It didn't come easy to him to to talk about himself and. Given the life story, like, you know, people like me, I would call them, I'd just call every couple of years uh, for, for a long time, a couple, every now and then, and just bully him into talking about the past. And he was very nice to me, and he would, but it, it, it definitely, uh, he did it for me. He didn't do it for himself. The death of Belgian Baylor, I think juxtaposed with the death of Henry Aaron, feel like they go together in a lot of ways, this sort of overcoming roots and 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 Jim Crow and not doing it sort of certainly happily or doing it without being angry. I mean Baylor was so angry at DC. He never went back, right Dave? He didn't want to any part of Washington. Um and when he left DC to go to Idaho, he turned down opportunities to go play at HBCUs because he didn't want to be in a segregated environment. It had, it, had, it had ruined him, it feels like, in so many ways. And when he got to the NBA, there's this story that you recount and others have recounted, how when uh, the Lakers were in Charleston, West Virginia, when he was a rookie and a hotel wouldn't give him and other black players on the team rooms, he sat out the game. He was sick of it. Yeah, and, and like the anger is visible in his actions. There was sort of an acceptance, and like he, he used this line, that's the way things were, you know, about, about why. Because I, like I, I would want him to be enraged. I would want him to, because like it just, you feel bad for humanity to, to, to read about what he endured. And he, I remember him saying, um, it's the way it was. Or there's that, that quote from his memoir from that episode in West Virginia where his teammate, Hot Rod Hundley asked him to change his mind about not playing, and Baylor says, I'm a human being. He said that he told Hundley, I'm not an animal, put in a cage and let out for the show. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a wonderful and understandable quote, and, but he never uh, had that, that raid with me. He, he was a, uh, there was always humility and, um, and no boastfulness at all, no, no, no rage, nothing, just... Uh, I don't, it's not as if he would change much, I guess, with the way things turned out. He, he worked with it. He got had dealt a bad, a bad hand by most people's standards and uh, took the whole pot home. <laughs> he did really well. In some athletes, but also other famous people, celebrities, politicians, whatever, have that kind of ego. And it's upsetting to them that people don't know how great they were or remember how great they were and it's not nearly as important but he also never won an NBA championship which is the way that our kind of dumb sports brains kind of categorize athletes and so he had that against him and sort of being talked about in these like greatest player ever pantheon sort of conversations but when you talk to the folks that he grew up with in in DC Dave when you talk to his peers in the NBA, when you talk to people that, you know, writers, anybody that that saw him, there's just no, it, it's hard to think about people that are talked about with such reverence. And that's really the testament to both the life well-lived and also to 
his greatness. And I think, you know, it <laughs> it makes me weepy to see you being weepy. But the sad thing, and, and Stefan mentioned Henry Aaron, is just like so many of those guys in this generation isn't going to be around anymore to tell us how great Elgin Baylor was, this guy who doesn't want to talk about how great he was. And that's why I'm so grateful for all the stuff that you wrote um, that has that that testimony and has these stories. So thank you. Oh, well, I, I, I did it for me. <laughs> no, I mean, you just there, wanted there to was, talk to Elgin. I, well, it's totally that because I'm a DC guy. <laughs> and, and again, you talk to these and, and there's so many stories. I mean, I... I'd have to go to Microfish in you know in the '90s uh, because the, then the post archives, the Washington Post archives, there weren't, there weren't the stories enough of them uh, uh, in the mainstream papers. There weren't enough there, so I, the Afro American papers covered his exhibitions and would cover Elgin's uh, other stuff. Uh, Sam Lacey, the legendary sports writer of the Afro American, who worked until he was a hundred years old and saw an amazing. I mean, you know, this guy he had a life. He he could tell tell some tales. He was a organizer of these exhibitions games against white players when after Elgin's senior year, when Elgin wasn't voted on by the newspaper reporters to the All-Star game, they put together these games uh, because only white players were voted on to the All-Star games, the All-Prep, All-High game, which was the Washington Post put on. Sam Lacey and, and others and, and, uh, and a, a local promoter put on these uh, games that, uh, they called Mixed Race Battles to get him some acclaim in, in the area um, where he would play white teams and always, always win. And... Uh, Everything comes together. America's you know athletic history. He was changing the way basketball was being played. His senior year of high school. Uh, at the same time, uh, the way school was structured in his hometown in America was being overhauled. The Brown versus Board of Education came in the, the final semester of his uh, his senior year. A main plaintiff was a. Uh, uh, Spotswood Bowling, which was a classmate of of Baylor's at at Spingarn and another basketball player at Spingarn, was like changed the world and definitely changed D.C. like few Supreme Court cases ever did. The convergence of of the changing worlds of sports and and culture and race race in America all come together with Baylor. What should D.C. do to honor Elgin Baylor's memory, right? Like, I know you, I'm sure you've got some ideas. Here's my rage. This is where my rage comes out. It makes no sense at all that there is nothing for this guy here. The only thing named for him is genuine. The the only thing named for him in Washington, D.C. is the soul crooner genuine, whose real name is Elgin Baylor Lumpkin. Wait, I did not know that. Are you serious? Genuine? Yes. That's where his name is from? Yes, oh Elgin Baylor. He's a DC native, and uh, but other than that, like, there's no park, there's no basketball court, there's no nothing. Like Seattle has a tournament in his name. Seattle has a basketball court in his name. Los Angeles has a statue. Washington has nothing, and and there's a Marvin Gaye Park right next to Kelly Miller. Kelly Miller Playground is where Elgin and Wilt played, and where you know the, where the legend was born. And there's, there's a, a Marvin Gaye park, and Marvin Gaye surely deserves something. You know, he's incredible, and his albums <laughs> are unbelievable. But he also had to go to L.A. to get this acclaim. He went to Cardoza High School here, but then he left and never came back. What's, what's the excuse for Elgin? I mean, El, Elgin, he made the rest of the world uh, notice Washington, D.C., but something has to be done. I mean, it just has to be rectified. I mean, his, story, his story's amazing. It is. Dave McKenna wrote about Elgin Baylor for Defector and uh, Washington City Paper and Grandland. 
We'll put links to all of his fantastic stories on our show page. Dave, thank you so much. I mean, I really do appreciate you're doing God's work by getting, getting his name out there. It is sad that he had to die to get the publicity he always deserved. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. And I want to honor a man who wrote into the Washington Post in 1954 about Elgin Baylor. This is, again, as McKenna told us, a time when the paper basically didn't cover black athletes in the city. It only covered white athletes. It pretended that the white high schools were the only high schools in the city. And this guy, James A. Clay, wrote to the Post, and he said, I've seen just about all of them with the Kernans, Georges, Sullivans, Kesslers, etc. All are good or better than good basketball players. But before you do your selecting for all high, all prep, all-star teams this year. Go out and see Elgin Baylor of Spingarn. He is the greatest high school basketball player of all time. So forget the unwritten rule and watch him play so as not to do him the great injustice of leaving him off. Don't take anyone's word about him. See him yourselves. Then if you can leave him off, that's a different story. James A. Clay, 2026 4th Street Northwest. Those were the days when they put people's addresses on the newspaper. How about that, man? He must have, I mean, he, how right was he? He hadn't even seen all the other basketball players. not like you could watch the McDonald's game on TV in 1954. So that's well, a good scout, too. Yep. All right. Joel, what's your James A. Clay? Well, Josh mentioned that I was a college football fan earlier, and so I thought it was appropriate to uh, play Respect to the memory of one of college football's most memorable characters and program builders, Howard Schnellenberger, uh, who died at the age of 87 over the weekend. Um, so Schnellenberger is probably best known for reviving the football program at the University of Miami. When Schnellenberger arrived at Miami in 1979, the Hurricanes were on their sixth coach in nine years after Lou Saban, no relation to Nick uh, that I know of. He left Miami for Army. All right. So at that point, Miami hadn't won more than six games in a season in 12 years. Its best season had come in 1945, the year it went 9-1-1 and defeated Holy Cross in the Orange Bowl. So yeah, at that point, there was very little clue that the Canes were anywhere near the cusp of greatness. And as often been recounted in recent days, Miami administrators had even considered dropping football as losses mounted and morale dipped. And Schnellenberger didn't exactly get off to an auspicious start. In that first season in Coral Gables, the Canes lost three of their first four home games, including a three-point loss in Tallahassee. Not to rival Florida State, but to Division I AA Florida A&M. The turning point in that first season, and maybe for the whole program, came later in the year with Miami at 3-4. and four. The Canes were heading into a game against nationally ranked Penn State on the first Saturday of November. 
To that point in the year, Schnellenberger, an offensive whiz who was the coordinator for the undefeated 1972 Miami Dolphins, had gone with Mike Rodriguez as the starting quarterback. Now, Rodriguez had acquitted himself fairly well given the circumstances, namely a pretty awful offensive line. Rodriguez was a good athlete, Miami's first quarterback ever to bench 300 pounds, and he also ran a 4.75 40-yard dash. So, like, that, this is all according to Miami. I don't know if that time is official, but that's what they say, <laughs> so whatever. Hand-tied. Uh, Rodriguez was a sophomore who'd even started some as a true freshman the previous year. But Schnellenberger knew he wasn't good enough to beat Penn State. So coach turned to a redshirt freshman, a guy from Western Pennsylvania who'd grown up dreaming of playing for Joe Paterno and the Nittany Lions. His name was Jim Kelly. Schnellenberger didn't even ask his coaching staff for their opinion about the quarterback switch. He just went with it, having seen enough of Kelly and spot duty throughout the season. That Saturday in State College, at the pregame breakfast four hours before kickoff, Schnellenberger announced to the team that Kelly would start. Schnellenberger said Kelly's response wasn't exactly confidence-inspiring. He surprised me by promptly going to the bathroom and throwing up. I wondered, what in the hell is wrong with this kid, Schnellenberger told Buffalo News years later. Asked if he had second thoughts about his decision, Schnellenberger said, well, it was too late then. What Schnellenberger didn't know that Kelly's nausea was as much a part of his pregame routine as breakfast. In the end, Kelly validated Schnellenberger's belief in him by throwing for 278 yards and three touchdowns in Miami's 26-10 upset of Penn State. After the game, Schnellenberger told reporters, we came in with the idea that the lesser of two evils was throwing the ball, a sort of testament to the Canes offense earlier in the season. A local newspaper had written, most of this year has been a bomb with a wet fuse, running to no avail and passing sometimes as few as 11 times a game. So from that moment forward, a modern passing game would be a staple of the Miami program. As long as Kelly's in the game, Schnellenberger said, we've got to use Kelly's style of attack. Now, this move wasn't the catalyst for an immediate turnaround. Miami lost its next two games, a 30 to nothing blowout at top-ranked Alabama, and then a 40 to 15 loss to Notre Dame in Tokyo. But the Canes went 9 and 3 the next year, and 9 and 2 the following season, a year that ended with an Orange Bowl victory over Notre Dame. 2 years later, in 1983, Schnellenberger and the Hurricanes won their first national championship. That would be his last game at Miami. Schnellenberger accepted an offer to coach the South Florida-based team in the fledgling USFL that never materialized. In 2011, Schnellenberger said of leaving Miami, if you look at it objectively, it was the dumbest thing a human being could do. And Schnellenberger wasn't quite able to recreate that same magic elsewhere. He had one 10-win season at Louisville, but finished his tenure there with a losing record. And he had a fairly underwhelming year at Oklahoma in 1995, with the Sooners going 5-5-1. In his final chapter, Schnellenberger created a whole football program from scratch at Florida Atlantic University, guiding the university from Division I-AA to Division I. He finished his college coaching career with an overall record of 158-151-3, which goes to show you that one-loss records don't always tell the full story of someone's contributions to the game. But I think the real lesson here is don't let a little queasiness get in the way of a good thing. So, Stefan... What is your Schnellenberger? Two things about Howard Schnellenberger. Number one, mustache. Number mm-hmm. two, <laughs> the thing that uh, caught my attention is uh, scheduling back to back to back Penn State, <laughs> Alabama, and Notre Dame in Japan. Yeah. Whoever was doing the scheduling for uh, <laughs> Miami back then was, uh, you know, didn't, didn't give them the easiest road. 
Well, you know, Miami was an independent, so they had to kind of, I guess they had to, you know, they were like, uh, what is it, Boise State will play you anywhere, you know, basically. That, that, that was their motto, so they had to go anywhere, man. Even Tokyo. Play, play, play in Japan. All right, Stefan, what is your James A. Clay? On Saturday night, I was channel surfing during the NCAAs and happened to cross some playoff college hockey on ESPN, and then I fell asleep. But when I woke up early on Sunday morning, they were still playing. So I recorded the game to see what would happen, and I'm glad I did because it was nuts. In the fifth overtime of this regional final, after 142 minutes and 13 seconds of play, North Dakota goaltender Adam Scheel led a wrist shot from Minnesota Duluth freshman Luke Milmock through his five hole and into the net dog pile tears the whole sports thing it was really incredible truth be told the goal that shield allowed was kind of a softy and i'm sure he's blaming himself for the loss but as my friend andy glockner pointed out fans on twitter were extremely kind to the goaltender someone hug adam shield for me he is an absolute unit one guy tweeted, head up, man. Another fan posted, you played a hell of a game and had a hell of a season. One guy posted a picture of his little girl and wrote, you made Macy's first hockey season so memorable and we can't wait for an even better one next year. The accolades went on and on. Game of a lifetime for Adam Scheel. Adam Scheel is our man and you can come fight me about it if you feel differently. You played your ass off. No way we lost because of you. Keep your head high, man. It was like Whoville after the great Grinch stole all the presents. But there was even more goodwill in this game, and it had to do with the play-by-play announcer, Leah Hextall. Hextall comes from a hockey family. Her grandfather, Brian, is in the Hall of Fame. Her cousin, Ron, was the longtime goalie for the Philadelphia Flyers and is now the GM of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Last year, Leah Hextall became the first woman to do play-by-play for an NHL game for the Canadian Network Sportsnet as part of an all-woman booth on International Women's Day. Hextall also did the last NCAA men's tournament in 2019. She's great, smooth and creative in a sport governed by nonstop action, emotive when the moment calls for it, steady during moments of chaos. She absolutely nailed one super confusing sequence during the North Dakota-Minnesota Duluth game when a puck landed in the mesh on top of the goal. And to go seven full periods plus, my voice is shot after doing this podcast. And the NCAAs were her first play-by-play assignment of the year. But Hextall is, of course, a woman in sports broadcasting, and women in sports broadcasting, especially women calling men's sports, have to deal with male sports fans who can be sexist idiots. But again, in this case, the response was almost universally complimentary. There were tweets calling for ESPN to hire her when it begins showing the NHL next year. Dan Wetzel of Yahoo called her as good of a hockey play-by-play announcer as there is. Canadian hockey broadcaster Darren Drake of TSN, who has a million followers, tweeted, terrific work, a career milestone that's tough to beat. But it was the regular dudes, too. Leah Hextall crushed the play-by-play. Love Leah Hextall call of game. Leah Hextall is a friggin' pro. You will be the next Doc Emmerich. A user named Zach Jack Dad wrote, I have never heard you do play-by-play before, and I searched you out on Twitter to tell you that you are incredible and doing a great job. Fab Five Hockey Fans Minnesota, five middle-aged dudes with a Twitter, wrote, Well done, Leah. All five of us have been texting about how well you have done all night, and Manitoba accent is so fitting for this Duluth and Grand Forks battle. 
A 50-something guy who enjoys barbecue, good wine, and scotch told Hextall she should be hosting Hockey Night in Canada. R.W. wrote, you did an outstanding job, and I am not being PC. This was all great to see, but let's not forget that too often the response online isn't like this, particularly if you're black or a woman. After his team was upset by Oral Roberts in the first round of the men's basketball tournament, E.J. Liddell of Ohio State reported that he received a slew of racist and threatening messages online, including one that said, I hope you die, I really do. And after his team was upset by Loyola Chicago in the second round, Kofi Coburn of Illinois received similar messages. Hockey, too, has had longstanding and ongoing problems with racist abuse and with sexism. If Adam Scheel were black, would fans have been as universally forgiving? Probably not. If Leah Hextall hadn't been near perfect on her call, would bozos have told her that she didn't belong in the booth? No doubt. And so, it's important to keep things in perspective. Maybe this was North Dakota nice, or Canada nice, or non-racist hockey nice, but whatever the reason, for one game, it warmed my heart to know that sports fans could respect valiant effort on a field of play and talented work behind a mic. In a better world, this wouldn't be cause for an afterball. Acceptance and understanding and respect and appreciation would be the standard receptions, regardless of race or gender or sexual orientation, regardless of the outcome of a game. And sports would be so much better and much more fun if it were that way. That's a delightful little story. I was guessing people can be nice and be fans. Um, you know, very, very upbeat. Maybe 20, what 21 is going to be different for 2020 after all. <laughs> Maybe. Stefan's just got to stay up late and watch more hockey games and report, report back for us. <laughs> that is our show for today. Our producer this week was Margaret Kelly. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and Elgin Baylor. Thanks for listening. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.